Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And Adi Iyengar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. And we have no special guest this week, but we have an Adi, which has great ideas about topics. So Adi, what are we going to talk about? Yes, I was thinking that there isn't really a, at least that I know of, a podcast episode or a blog post that people can go to that acts as like a starter kit, right? If you want to deploy production-ready Phoenix application, like here are the tools and frameworks you can look at, which are feasible for V1 of the application without over-engineering, right? And what use cases you can use them for. In, and we can go all the way from Elixir Phoenix Ecto to, you know, how, maybe how to deploy and even observe the application. So, yeah, starter kit if you want to deploy a production-ready Elixir application, Phoenix application. That's an amazing name you came up with. I wonder where you got the name from, starter kit. Yeah, I just came up with it myself. Smooth. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Alan uh, suggested that name before we started recording. I don't remember that. Most definitely, buddy. What is in your starter kit, Alan? Wow. Definitely open. It's definitely in my starter kit for sure. Like, I don't do any background jobs without pulling that out that toolkit. Of course, Phoenix is definitely in there if you want to call that. I mean, would you would you count Phoenix as something in your toolkit? Like, are you going at the Elixir language part or are you starting from Phoenix? Because most of the time you're going to be starting from Phoenix, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I would, I think st still goes that saying. I know a lot of people have tried to use other ways to deploy their web applications uh, in Elixir. Definitely go the Phoenix out if it's a first application. Once you understand the basics, you can try out. I think Ash is still Ash is pretty good now. But I mean, if you're trying the trying to go the plug route and uh, cowboy route, it could get very messy. <laughs> I mean, you can, and I've, I've built a production ready application with only plug, but that also had like only two endpoints or something like that. So right, and, and again, if it's a first application, right, like learn the lesser things you have yeah, to learn, yeah. that you know, the easier it'll be for you to climb up that ladder of knowledge so phoenix for api building uh, opens for open for background jobs and if unless anybody of you listeners is not aware open is um, basically the sidekick of elixir land i would say so like the, the the thing that makes background jobs work nicely the big difference between uh, open and sidekick for example is the sidekick is using redis open is using postgres and i feel in general the elixir ecosystem has kind of diverged on not converged on Postgres as the, the the default persistence solution. Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, I'm going to add a little bit to that too. I think I think uh, just I know we have a lot of beginners who listen. So background job processing, anything that happens asynchronously from user requests, user requests for something you want to return and then process something outside of that lifecycle, right? Outside of the control lifecycle, schedule a job to run separately. And really, if it's a first Linux application, just don't put any thought to it and use Oban. Same like like Sasha said, if you. you you're probably already using Postgres, which we didn't really talk much about, but yeah, Ecto Postgres probably already using that. Just hook the same repo with Oban. You get free retries, free rate limiting, free horizontal scaling too. You probably won't worry about that uh, if you're writing a V1, but Oban can push your application through quite a lot of scale and it's simple to adopt and use. So it's, it's, it's really a win-win uh, to use Oban. So yeah, 100% on Oban. Yeah, and like, if you're wondering at this point, like, okay, but I mean, like, doesn't Elixir have background processing, right? Like, this, this task thing, a lot around and yes, it is. The benefit of a library like Oban is, as Adi just said, you get retries and everything, right? Like you get the whole shebang of like, okay, I, I now want to schedule something for later. I, and I don't, I don't want to think about like what happens if this crashes, right? Because if you use a task, you can do that. And that is sometimes also the right choice. But if you use the task, well, if that thing crashes, it's gone. Boom, end of story. And sometimes that's okay. Like depending on the specific use case, that's perfectly fine. But more often than not, especially when it comes to user actions, that's not okay. <laughs> and then like reaching for 
for something like open, especially as a first measure, is probably a simpler choice um, yeah. because you need to jump to that through less hoops to get to get some kind of some, uh, certain guarantees. It just works in quotes. And not, not to mention like all that. What would you call that? Like the history, right? Because if you have yeah, you, yeah. I mean, you have that database stuff back, to, of course you can prune it out and whatever, but still you have some kind of history. You can see what happened. There's been so many times where I have to go back in time and see, did this job actually run? Did this thing happen? Does it succeed? Did it fail? And I think it also captures that the error if there was an error that happened. Yeah. So the, the only bad thing that took me just a moment to kind of figure out which was like how to actually log that in the logger because I don't know if it's things have changed or not, but I know before it doesn't throw the error to the log, but it does capture it and put it into the database for error messages. Is it, do you know if that's changed or not? Because I know the only way to catch it is, is with uh, telemetry. Yeah, that's what I was going to suggest. I think you can just like create the handler. It's very easy to do that. You can even, I think Oban even has a, a default handler that can be turned on in configuration now, which logs it too. But yeah, I think it makes it pretty easy to just capture a telemetry event and like, you know, do whatever operation you want with it. And I know there's definitely talk about like having other client libraries. So like something with Golang, I think was something that was talked about. I'm not so sure if he started working on that, but this was a while ago. He was talking about expanding into other languages, which would be kind of interesting because as time goes on, usually do I start adding in other languages, but maybe we kind of go off on a tangent about Open. But I think that's kind of shows you the power, right? Is that it really is a really fantastic uh, background job kind of processing tool. Yeah, it, it gets out of the way. And I think um, some, sometimes that's like the, the nicest thing you can say about a library or, or framework it, that you don't really need to think about how to use it. It just works. Yeah, and again, I have to mention the the testing library as well. They've they put a good amount of effort in making sure everything is testable to its core. You can test retries, you can test whatever, you can test events that are emitted after a job is uh, completed. You can test whether it's, again, PubSub allows you to test it, whether it's hooked up to live view really well and stuff. Again, it's a complete library, Oban. So I highly recommend that. I mean, what is Oban running on, Adi? What is usually, like, what are you used together with Oban? You use then like an Ecto repo, right? I mean, you could briefly mention it already. So Ecto is also the one of the things that, I mean, I feel kind of obvious in saying it. Yeah. It seems like the, like, yeah, like totally. If you're building your first, yeah, if you're building a first Phoenix app, again, don't try to do anything fancy. Try to get the experience of managing a production-ready app first before doing something fancy. Use Acto, use Postgres, <laughs> use Phoenix, like we talked about. Yeah, yeah, I felt it went without saying, but I'm glad you still brought up Sasha. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in general, I mean, I can't just this is not exactly like the elixir, but uh, I just can't state often enough how amazing a piece of technology Postgres is. But Postgres is just so nice to work with. Agreed. And I think now Oban also works really well with the whole, uh, I think, PG Bouncer and stuff. The uh, doesn't rely on some of the advisory locks stuff that it used to. So again, it can take you far. <laughs> Like at, at my team, we're really pushing it, it to its limits and we, it's holding out really well. Okay, so, so now, now I have a thing to build some APIs or maybe some web pages right with Phoenix. And then, I mean, I got just to plug it here, Phoenix Live View potentially is a thing you might also want to look into. And in general, Phoenix components and everything, I kind of would subsume all of those under Phoenix. Yeah. So if you start out and you want to build a production ready application, honestly, just dive into the Phoenix guides and, and dig in. Um, then persistence, right? Ecto, we talked about Ecto, background jobs. Oban. At that point, you might just be done, depending on your application. <laughs> but that might just be it. But what else is there? Yeah, I think there are some like very quick wins. It might not come to your mind right away, but 
since we added the term production ready, some mm-hmm. of security and making sure your app cannot be crashed very easily <laughs> by spamming health check UI or something, right? The rate limiting, right? Th- those kind of things start becoming important with the way Phoenix is designed in the whole plug architecture. And there's already a few libraries out there that do this really well. It's like rate limiting. I would check out Xhammer or uh, Plug Attack. Both of them allow you to very simply add basic rate limiting. Plug Attack is even super simple. Just use these edge table, which is uh, by default in memory Elixir term storage or line term storage <laughs> is its ETS. So yeah, you don't have to add anything external to your Elixir container to that. You can literally add rate limiting and you can rate limit by IP address. And I know Xhammer allows you to do a few more things like uh, add custom IP address, block IP address temporarily and stuff like that. So yeah, if you want to make sure as soon as you deploy your app, it's not spammed by bots, check these out because it's happened to me multiple times. Uh, even when I was, you know, especially when I was working in a startup, it's very easy to scrape subdomains <laughs> of a domain. And there are bots that do that. And as soon as a 200 response comes in or a 403 comes in, right? Anything but 404, they start spamming to find health check APIs and all that stuff. So the rate limiting is super important. I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen people trying to get WP admin all the time or like <laughs> HT access and all these other <laughs> random files. .env is a big one, right? I, I always have to chuckle when I see those in the logs, uh, when I can, in the Elixir application log and you see like admin PHP. It's like, no, sorry. Sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we should, you know, maybe, maybe I should consider to make like our library that auto returns like random stuff. You know, I don't know, either like, you know, haha, I know what you're trying to do or actually just give them fake data. <laughs> that could be interesting. That's a very cool idea. Admin PHP endpoint that just shows a fake admin page that doesn't do anything. Just they can waste their time. That's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wonder if you guys use any other like tools uh, like these you know, besides plug attack. Like that yeah. kind of tool? Nothing's coming to mind. I mean, for sure, uh, I like to use Absinthe a lot for making APIs, but I'm just kind of a big proponent of GraphQL. I mean, Tailwind is already included by default. That's a big one for me. Right. When I need to reach for JavaScript, I pull in Alpine because it's just so much easier and so much more clear. Yeah, I would uh, give that a plus one too. I think I know a lot of people, I think there's a kind of a, paradigm shift right in the phoenix world where people are trying to go away from alpine and just use the phoenix js for everything and it works for most of it but there are times when alpine really makes it easy for you to hook your live view events to javascript which you cannot do with phoenix or js right uh so yeah definitely check out alpine i'm sure there is a way we can <laughs> change phoenix to support that but i have tried plenty and i don't think phoenix js is a one-to-one replacement right now for alpine and just forgive for additional context Alpine is something you might want to look into, especially when you use Phoenix Live View. I mean, not necessarily only then, but it's especially useful then, at least from my experience. I mean, like a funny little tidbit there, from my understanding, Alpine was developed from like somebody in the PHP land when they built something similar to Live View in PHP and they kind of wanted to have some more front-end interactability and that is where Alpine came from. So it is something that at least originates in this whole Live View bubble, let's say that. Yeah, I guess that depends on which context, but I think I think Alpine is good either way. I think Alpine and Live View can contradict each other depending on how you use it. And that's where I think it can get very tricky, right? When a button calls a Phoenix hook, right? And you want to do 
update and alpine context with that right stuff like that gets very tricky but yeah i mean i actually think alpine works best outside of the live view like outside of the live view mount especially if you're mounting live view into a controller page which is how i tend to use live view just simpler that way but anyway yeah i think there's many ways of using it (laughs) well that's like the best part about it is yeah you can always reach for you know that js helper that they have now in phoenix or sorry in live view right yeah but i mean alpine's great for like what do you call that like no matter it's a live view or a dead view right which is really right exactly nice like so if you have like that menu bar that pops up and on all the pages it's nice to be able to have it written once yeah i guess another quick one coming from like a like a security side again in production applications those things become very important is uh, check out like sobelo covers a lot of uh, html injection in some cases also sql injection only in some cases but obviously like dependencies old dependencies your headers <laughs> everything so yeah sobelo is like a nice uh security and they they keep expanding you know it's it's a very well maintained library so at ci level you can catch a lot of vulnerabilities before deploying application to production again if you're building a production ready application it becomes very important yeah definitely um like it also catches something like hard-coded secrets in your configuration files stuff like that i mean i I literally had to work around that (laughs) just today because i migrated some of our compile time configuration into the runtime configuration and the dev dev repo setup is just postgres postgres but like local development whatever and then sobelo was like ah you have some (laughs) secrets here and i was like yes that's fine. Please, please don't bother me about it. But in general, it's a very useful tool. It catches things like those, and especially when it comes to secrets, right? That's like something you you better be safe and sorry. Yeah. Well, another thing I kind of want to uh, expand upon this in another direction, right? I mean, we're talking about runtime when your app is running, but what about when you're actually developing, right? I know Adi, you're a big tester. I mean, for sure, three things I like to bring into my app is mocks for mocking out things with behaviors, faker because generating like fake data, and it's nice to have random fake data because you can find some other weird issues with that. And then the other one would be uh, X Machina, which just makes life so much easier where you can generate parameters, string parameters, and of course, uh, insert data into your, you know, using factories into your, your database. Super helpful. And all those combined together, really uh, a nice toolkit, I think. Yeah, totally agreed on Faker and X Machina. I, I think both of them I use, I just like have it in my template <laughs> of my Phoenix project to always have them included. Mocks, I am, I go back and forth on, but uh, I know it's like, you know, more, I guess, uh, you know, depends on your opinion, but uh, X Machina and Faker are like pretty objectively best testing tools. Well, I guess a lot of people don't like X Machina either, right? People like to build their own factories and just use Faker, but I'm very much on the X Machina plus Faker team. Yeah, especially if you have um, like a more ecto, like persistence heavy application, yeah. right? Like something that is very CRUD heavy, create, read, update, delete, then something like X Machina to quickly create and test data in your database. is just, it simplifies. It simplifies things. Right. And also to create data in your dev database when you can also use it in like dev environment and uh, QA things locally. Oh, what about I'm also a big fan of have you guys ever worked with something called Briefly before? Have you seen that before? Nope. Okay. What's really cool? So there's this package called Briefly. I think it came from the same guys who work on Absinthe. It's basically a way to create a temporary file or temporary directory that gets cleaned up once the process 
process ends. So whenever I have to generate files or handle something and I want to clean it up, I always use Briefly. It's super nice. It creates it. I mean, you can obviously put it wherever you want to put it, but default, it puts into your, your, your temp folder. And then once the process is done using it, it gets cleaned up immediately, which is super helpful if you're working on like Kubernetes or something like that, where you can't keep flowing up the drive with data. Yeah, something I also want to plug in, it kind of goes into the same direction as what you just mentioned with Sobolo, Adi, but I think Credo is never a bad choice. I'm personally very fond of the default settings. I know that people like to use Credo also for strict settings when it's like more of a traditional linter. And just maybe to give you a little bit of a gist of what Credo is about, it's um, also a code linter, but there's a bit of a difference between Credo and some other code linters unless you use the strict settings and then it really behaves like a traditional linter. In that Credo tries to figure out, well, how do you usually write your code? Then it kind of no, nudges you on consistency. So uh, just one example, maybe like the ordering of your aliases and requires and imports. And, the, and then it tries to figure out, okay, how do you usually order those in your code? And then when you diverge from that in one module, it will say, hey, you're doing it differently over there. And usually you do it like this. And personally, I find that very, very neat. Yeah, since we're like in, a, we're in the application we're building at work, we have it set to strict because then it's like more of this opinionated thing. And like that's better for like keeping the same consistent code style. But if it's your application, you mostly work on that credo as uh, without strict settings is still very useful. And it kind of also nudges you towards some best practices. It doesn't only look for consistency things, but it also looks for some, has some best practice checks and so on and so forth. And so if you are starting out of Elixir, maybe don't have that much experience and kind of want to get to a production-ready thing, then Credo is something that can also help to learn along the way. Yeah, plus one. Yeah, I think one of the things about Credo is also that on top of the tool, it also provides a framework to extend it. Very easy to add your own checks. And just like instead of like adding a separate CI check, for different things, just keep expanding on Credo as long as it's a compile compile time, <laughs> right? So yeah, huge huge fan of that too. At my current in my current team, we have like at least seven or eight custom Credo checks for different. It doesn't have to be like like you know the code kind of like the standardization of code, but also if you're doing something weird, like one of my current work, I'm like doing something really weird with Oban. We and it led to the to a point where we cannot call Oban.insert. We have to go through a separate library, right? And like put Policing patterns within your how how something is used, and again, it's all it's a compile time check, right? It took like fifteen minutes to write a credo check um, mm. to to add stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it also provides documentation, right? And also a nice like a compile time check as well. Huge fan of that. Also, isn't it called Credo? I think you were the one. Who, yeah, probably. Well, actually, you were the one who mentioned. You said you know the creator, and <laughs> you said it's Credo. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Maybe I got infected by someone of you. <laughs> and when it comes to testing, I just want to jump back to like one testing uh, thing. If you are not a fan of mocks and you, maybe you want the more traditional mocking experience because mocks is kind of assuming that you have behaviors and then it generates test mocks for those behaviors, there's a library called Mimic, which kind of has like a very similar API surface to mocks, but it really allows you to say, okay, I want to mock out existing modules. It is a bit hit and miss, especially when it comes to macros, because then like funny shit is starting to happen, honestly. Like if you want to mock out a library um, module that also has some macros, but a part of that works fairly well. And like we, in our code base, we actually use both. We have um, parts where we like use mocks, and that is like the default choice in general. But when we want to call into like external dependencies, some. Like, yeah, you could then wrap that again in a module of your own, but the behavior. 
but then it's honestly just simpler to say, okay, now I'm going to use Mimic to check that I'm calling this particular dependency correctly over there. So yeah, I mean, tend to use both. I, for me personally, I'm more of a Mox fan, but Mimic is a nice tool to have. I guess one thing that people might, and it's like branching off of testing a little bit, another thing you might start needing maybe quickly, I don't know, it depends, is like a little bit of caching, especially, you know, if you're using, using Postgres quite heavily and some of the queries are very heavy. Something like Nebulix could be super useful. It works best with Redis and it says that, but it also works with like, you know, local your know, term storage. And it can also be distributed if, if you do decide to scale your application across multiple nodes. Uh, but yeah, I think I would, yeah, I would check out Nebulix as well the, for caching if you're making multiple queries multiple times for data that doesn't change that often, right? That's like a use case for that. Alternatively, the library I also like to reach for is a CacheX because Nebulex kind of comes with some, is it more of an yeah. opinionated caching library, which is perfectly fine? It uh, is. I think it's also bigger, like it's got more yeah, uh, features yeah, too, yeah. But like, I mean, it also comes with this option to use the decor decorator pattern where to like kind of annotate the functions you want to get cached. And in some cases, that is honestly really nice because then you can just, the, the, the business logic stays the same and you just plug that thing there and say, okay, this thing should be cached for like five minutes, end of story. But sometimes if you're like a bit more lower level, I guess, or a bit more, how should I put this, but more less bells and whistles, but also more flexible in that manner, I guess, is um, CacheX. And like, when I just want to quick and dirty caching and without really thinking about it, then I usually reach for something like CacheX over Nebulex. But that is my personal uh, experience. Interesting. I've, I actually, interesting. I, I feel like I'm kind of like a little opposite. If I want something quick and dirty, I would go with Nebulex. And if I want to fine tune my caching, CacheX gives me more control. I think what I like about Nebulex is it literally takes you less than 15 minutes to add it, add caching more decorators and all so I test for it. it. Just have everything built in, and I think it also has supports CacheX as a as a engine for caching. <laughs> so so I think you can also like turn Nebulix off if you want to fine tune your cache caching with CacheX. But yeah, it's interesting that you use CacheX for quick and dirty. I feel like yeah. Nebulix very faster. I, I when I say quick and dirty, I really mean in the sense of okay, I'm just writing some code over here, and I want to have it caching for now, but I'm not maybe not quite sure on the API it will have in the long run. Gotcha. Right? Then just plugging some cache CacheX instructions here and there, like wrap, maybe having a wrapper around like one particular part of the code tends to be easier. And then, for example, when I actually come to the point where I say, okay, now, now I kind of settled on the API, I want to have this module, high-level API, then having something like, like Nebulex is usually the straight, more straightforward solution. I mean, literally today, I kind of battled against Nebulex because I wanted to put some default configuration inside of my cache. I wanted to say, hey, please use this telemetry prefix. And it turns out there's no really easy way to do that. Like you, you can put it in the configuration file, you can put it in the supervisor, but you can't easily put it in the module which defines the cache. And I found that super annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Timex is a huge one. I think yes. that one. Timex, yes. I want to maybe save that thought, Alan, because and like something you also probably want to cache very often is API integrations, right? Like when you call into a third party thing. And the tool I'm usually using there is um, Tesla, especially when I'm like building like when I know that I'm going to integrate, interact with this particular API over there, and maybe there's maybe there's a library for it, then yeah, I'm gonna use that. But if there isn't, and I'm gonna use Tesla. And then with Tesla, you can build out your module where you say, okay, like it has this top level functions that kind of represent actions on that API. And now I'm using it to like build that request. And 
consented and also built in testing so you can in tesla just mock things away super easily um, but it really allows you to say okay i want to have that particular yeah that particular integration with that particular api and i want to have want to have a representation of it in my in my code base as a module and using tesla for that and tesla itself comes with some i think by default uses hackney i'm not sure entirely sure which http client it uses but you can also plug in whatever you can plug in finch you can plug in all the other http clients and that is more of an implementation detail but the, the, the api to kind of specify what kind of http integration like what kind of headers and so on and so forth you want to have all of that happens through tesla and so far i've found it a joy every single time yeah i like tesla a lot i think what one of the yeah i think like you said it's very heavyweight allows you to do so many things and again simple if you want to just use it very quickly too interesting that you said you use it for external api caching i would use nebulix for that too i would just like cache the no no i meant to say i meant yeah exactly i meant to say like uh something you also want to cache usually is like an integration with an gotcha 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 gotcha. okay for that i usually use tesla i see i see i see okay okay And that is the nice thing there, right? Like then you can easily say, for example, you're going to specify your, your Tesla client for an API and then you right. slap some Nebulex on it and done. Right, exactly. Or just the decorated in the function itself. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But Alan, you had a pretty awesome library that you were mentioning. Yeah, sorry. Timex is a huge one. I mean, like whenever I want to do anything with, with time zones, because most of my clients are not in the same time zone as me. So I have to do this a lot. Even if they're in the same time zone as me, like my financial one, they want to do, I don't know, I forgot what the reason why, but they always want to have their system in Cape Town time. So South Africa, it's a little bit weird. You know, they're based here. Somehow they find that Cape Town just makes life easier. I think it's the way they trade certain markets. It just makes more sense. So it's it's interesting, like how easy and how useful that one is. Of course, most of the things built built on like TZ data, things like that. But I mean, of course, things now in Elixir standard library is better. But when it first came out, like we didn't have very good support for date and times and time zones and all this kind of stuff. But I think nowadays you probably can get away with things. But still, the, the convenience methods within Timex, I think, are just worth it just to bring it in. Agreed. It's again one of the things that's in my default template. And even if you're not playing with time zones, formatting, calculating difference, and any kind of operation, you know, time related or date related operation, calendar related operation, Timex is just like convenience is a word. Alan. Like it just has functions for everything. Yeah. I do want to plug here, like if you don't need to do like elaborate time operations like conversions, compare between time zones, right? But you, maybe you the only use case you have for something, I want to be able to parse different timestamps and different time zones and that should work out of the box then at this point the elixir standard library is, is actually really really there like the only thing you might you definitely want to do then is um, download a library called tz underscore data i think and then you can plug that in as the time zone database for the standard library and at that point the, uh, the standard library becomes able to also pass timestamps and different time zones with different annotations and gives you then like the date time structs that is something we're using in, in, inside of our application because we don't need to do any calculations but like no, no shift or comparison, we do have the need of saying, okay, we want to be able to parse certain timestamps and kind of retain what kind of time zone mode that were they in. And at that point, you don't need to reach for something like Timex, um, which you still can do. I mean, like if that is a mojo, go ahead. But I wanted to plug that it's not no longer a necessity. Like a few years back, actually, the standard library was not quite there. But at this point, it, it is. You, you can do that. And if, if it retains in a simple 
on a simple level where maybe you want to convert between two time zones or maybe you want to add a few um, seconds right or like a few days to, to, to some time and like shift it that's also very much possible with inside of a standard library but as soon as it gets more complex then better use timex because i mean you can do it in a standard library but timex makes it convenient i just haven't i'm yet to write a production application without timex i think just formatting or yeah one line function i think one thing especially that i feel like very quickly if you have like, you know, kind of like more number of users, like a D2C kind of an app that you're building, not a B2B app, you might need the ago, seconds ago, all those things, right? Like those little helpers to add. Yeah, yeah. That is like also user interface then, right? Because I mean, like in our case, we're building an API. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Um, I mean, like we have an admin interface, right? But maybe we'll actually use TimeX there. But right now we are building an API and we need to parse user data, like user given timestamps and that kind of stuff, but we don't need to do much formatting with it. I mean, is there any API specific stuff that you use when you're building out your APIs? Because like, I mean, for instance, we, we just built out like a REST API where we're using Swagger. Finally, we, we have this open API uh, generator that we're using to make life easier. Yeah. One thing I usually always plug in because it's, it's just not a big effort is um, there's an e-tech plug and i'm not sure if you're familiar with e-techs folks but e-techs is uh, one of the mechanisms through which caching can ha- happen through through http and the idea is kind of that like on the response you include this e-tech header it's literally called like that and it has some value and then clients can take that value and send it back to the to the backend and say okay if this matches here then just tell me and then like the the, the flow there is that it sends a three or four not modified or i'm not sure entirely sure what the exact http status description is but it sends a response that says here i don't give you any data i'm just going to tell you that the data you have that is specified by that e-tech is up to date and that is there's a plug in hex it's actually written by me because we had a few years back we were building an application wanted to do that and then i kind of extracted that into a library and it ha- i haven't really touched it since then because it just works <laughs> and you can just plop it in your pipeline put it there forget about it and it's especially nice when you have some mobile clients maybe with like a not so great internet connection because you it's free bandwidth saving if the app for example does have a, some caching built in it can then say hey back end please give me that resource by the way here's the e-tag then the backend can say yeah you got it it's up to date and you save some bandwidth and it's one of those fire and forget things i think that uh, i think there might be another one that someone wrote a while ago i think it might be michael michael yeah but, but, yeah there's, yeah. A, there's basically a difference between like there's two ways to go about about e-tags. There is, um, I cannot, now I'm going to go a bit to nerd mode, but there is the shallow e-tags, that's the e-tag plug. And the shallow, what that means is it's not aware of any content. What this thing does under the hood, it takes right. the response body, it makes a hash out of that, and that's the e-tag. Then there is deep e-tags. And for deep e-tags, that means you have context awareness. Uh, and that, of course, also means more code, right? So, for example, you might be able to say, hey, I kind of compute an e-tag or something uh, in, in when I insert a thing into the database, right? And then I kind of put it in the database. And then when a request comes, I can kind of maybe check that field. Hey, they are asking for a resource with this e-tech does that match and then you can maybe even save some computation and sometimes that makes sense because then you also save compute time on the back end right but it, again it's context aware so you need more effort and the library that Michal wrote actually is like for deep e-techs it's yep. the whole thing and the, the library I wrote and, and, and haven't really touched in yet because it just works is shallow e-techs so which has charm because you really just plop it in your pipeline forget about it there's nothing else you need to do and especially when you have mobile apps, those tend to be happy about the safe bandwidth. 
Awesome. So we talked about CI, we talked about kind of like dependencies based on use cases. I guess like one thing we kind of touched last time too is like, you know, observability and kind of uh, logging and stuff. And and uh, my go-to for that is AppSignal, just because of convenience again. It has great integration with Elixir and Erlang. It gives you a lot of observer insights, like, ooh, memory usage of a process, Erlang process and stuff like that. And it's free to use, I think at least for first month and it's very inexpensive i think it's like five bucks a month or something if, and which is not a huge price to pay for a production application yeah what about you guys like have you do you guys have any experience with app signal i know one more thing i'm a huge fan of app signal is that just the ability to send and analyze any data simply unlike i know datadoc can do the two right obviously and but it's just so complex <laughs> It's just learning Datadog itself will, is a, I don't know, it just, it's similar of effort as like learning Phoenix in, in a way. So an, an app signal, you don't even have to learn. It's very intuitive, simple, and you can use it for your app observability, instrumentation, and analytics, but also actually analyzing the performance of a product. You can start sending user insights and use app signal as like a, oh, number of sales, uh, conversion percentage and stuff like that, right? Which I have done before. And it's, uh, it's pretty useful to have like one $5 tool that does it for you. <laughs> I don't really, I mean, I personally have mostly used, my, my experience kind of has been with Datadoc or self-built monitoring for like the log aggregation stacks, those kind of things. Um, I haven't really done any app signal yet. So I mean, personally, I probably would give it a spin. I would also probably, I mean, like at this point, maybe maybe that, I mean, like this leaves a little bit of the production ready backpack like you want to start with and kind of goes into the, okay, like where do you want to expand into? So maybe that's like the, the extension. No, what, what I'm going to start with, wait, um, is what I usually then what I would do now if I would build like an app from scratch production ready I would um, opt into telemetry from the get go for like emitting traces and events then kind of transform them into open telemetry like have a handler that kind of puts them into the open telemetry stack and then have a collector which pushes them for example into app signal or into datadoc or into honeycomb because that is what I would do now personally I would have that set up with a collector and then try out some a few different solutions so I would actually try out hey how do I like app signal hey how do I like Honeycomb. Hey, how do I like Lightstep, right? And can I make make a make a make an overview of like what kind of those different solutions I, I would like? So this maybe leaving a little bit of the I'm just want to get rolling quickly. The end. This is my startup pack for building a thing. But what what definitely is interesting from for for like the startup pack is telemetry and open telemetry, and then you can export those to AppSignal because you don't have that vendor lock in. Whether if you use uh, the libraries that that are available for software as a service observability providers and with open telemetry as the name kind of suggests it's an open standard and you can then export those to app signal and get still or datadoc or whatever right and and still have all of the niceties of observing applications without the disadvantage of being kind of hardly bound to one specific provider yeah i guess i was like coming from like you don't want to spend more than 10 minutes on starting to observe your application right like uh like a very, very basic starter kit. Just add something to your hex PM, add an environment variable, boom, start <laughs> observing in an app signal. But yeah, I think just definitely avoiding vendor log is, I mean, based on the kind of priority building, you know, you should definitely evaluate that, right? Like how, how important is it? And I think, I guess like my next one was going to be deployment. I think same goes for deployment. My go-to solution is Heroku and actually also digging fly lately. But yeah, no matter where, what 
solution I go to, I go through the container approach to add at least some kind of flexibility. Obviously, there will be a little bit of customization based on Heroku and Fly, but as long as you go to container route, most platforms will make it easy for you to deploy containers. But yeah, I would definitely check out Heroku and Fly. Fly is free if your monthly bill is less than nine bucks, nine or less, right? So that's an advantage of Fly. And the only thing that sucks about it is it doesn't have a lot of support. You cannot, you know, quickly add like Redis or expand your instances very quickly. Like if you want to increase a post-based data and stuff like that, it doesn't have very good integration with, like if you hook up your Heroku with AppSignal or Datadog, within seconds, you'll have Heroku level insights as well, right? But Fly doesn't have anything like that. But yeah, it's run by, you know, a lot of uh, significant Phoenix people. So it might be worth giving it a try. I don't know. I've heard a lot of good things about Fly, but I haven't had the best experience. I don't know. I've had really bad experience, like where the database went down for some reason and it didn't get rebooted. And apparently they said this is not normal. So maybe... And you know, I've already complained about some other things I've had with them. And uh, yeah, I was just kind of surprised because like you said, everybody, I mean, sorry, not everybody, but quite a few famous or more well-known people in the Elixir community are using it or work in there. But I'm just like a little bit surprised about, I mean, you, you mentioned about the support, right? For me, the support is really not there. Like, I mean, like and when I have an issue, I cannot really contact them. It takes a while to get back to me. Yeah. It's that part is not the best. Yeah, uh, I would but, agree. I mean, uh, again, yeah, and, I, I, and today your CI went down because like we couldn't grab like so they have containers where you can use the fly CTO. Yeah. But for some weird reason it doesn't work in GitLab, which is what we're running our stuff on. And then I tried to ask for support about like how come I, I can't use this? And they just said, Well, you're not using it as intended, it closed the issue. So the only way around it I found is like installing it through like a curl command, which they talk which they talk about. That's been working, but then sometimes it stops working where like I don't know what happens with their infrastructure, but I'm unable to download that the installer anymore. That's like, the exact today, it's problem. just not working. That's the yeah. exact problem that I ran into. The the GitHub action doesn't work always. And yeah. the Fly CTL tool isn't always available to download. So I just like yeah. curl it and like cache it. <laughs> That's what I do, which is silly. But I think the only reason why I also deploy my side projects to, I deploy it to Heroku and Fly both. And I don't load balance across them. I just have Fly, one that I use on my own and use a central database for both of them that lives on Heroku. The only reason why I have it is because I want to be up to date with where it's going because a lot of big Phoenix and Elixir players are invested in it. Invested as in like, you know, at least like have invested their time at the very least in it. So yeah, but Alan, you're right. It's not at a place where if someone does, doesn't want to learn it, if someone doesn't want to deal with extra pain of coming up with GitHub uh, CI CD tasks for Fly and dealing with the, what they had like 4% downtime, right? This past half year, which is huge for a cloud provider, <laughs> right? The 4% downtime in like uh, active, or what is it called? Uh, you know, heavy, heavily active time, whatever. That's huge. We're, we're Heroku and AWS and all these things. We're talking 0.01, right? So yeah, I would definitely check check out um, Heroku. It's not free anymore. But, and they have like eco dinos, which are supposed to be environment friendly and also don't always run, which kind of costs you like four bucks a month or something. It's not free, but four bucks a month for that and maybe five bucks a month for Postgres is like 10 bucks a month. If you can afford that, I would definitely go that route. If you want to go the free route, Fly IO is free right now if your bill is less than 10 bucks a month. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, and I agree. I've had some tough time with Fly too, but I know a lot of a lot of Fly is like still a work in progress. So if people want to, you know, have like, you know, more consistent, easier to manage cloud providers, <laughs> cloud provider, go to Heroku. I think their dinos, eco dinos are like four, four or five bucks a month and Postgres is five bucks a month. And they give you a lot of discounts as well. Like if you consistently use it, they, every now and then I get like 20, 30% discount. Heroku, they just chop off 
a little bit of my bill. So, That's but nice. yeah, Fly.io is free. But if it's like, if you can afford 10, 15 bucks a month for a production application, check out Heroku. And something we haven't really gone into yet is, I mean, like the whole application we are kind of envision, envisioning right now, right? It's this, it's this more traditional CRUD application than, okay, we have monitoring, right? we have integration with two external APIs, we have some caching, we have testing. I mean, these day and age, you might also want to consume and ingest a whole bunch of events or in general, like event-like resources. Data. And at that point, uh, you probably want to reach for something like Broadway, because Broadway is uh, the library that makes ingesting these these sources like Kafka or anything else, honestly, relatively straightforward. It's not super straightforward because honestly, the whole topic in itself is not super straightforward. And you kind of have to think, hey, like, how do I want to ingest those? Right? Like, how do I want to route those? Can they be ingested in parallel? And so on and so forth. Is order relevant? All of those are questions you will have to ask yourself. And that entirely depends on the uh, specificities of the application you're building. And sometimes out of order events are perfectly fine sometimes they are not but something you probably don't want to do it is build that stuff yourself and then broadway kind of enters the picture and makes um, consuming those kind of event data relatively straightforward yeah i agree I, I think another way of like minimizing or at least delaying having to do something like the event consumption or at least like throttling event consumption like broadway oh. is like just again redesign workflow around oban it can really provide you that a lot of throttling batching and asynchronous capabilities, which again, you have to be like a little smart. By smart, I mean like cheeky or, <laughs> you know, like come with like ways around using that. But if you're deploying your first production application, I would just, I would not even, I would not recommend you going and going, do, doing anything event driven at all for a first, first few months. Yeah, I agree. It, it might just be that for a particular context, for a particular app you're building, you are kind of already like a downstream of something that is event right. driven, right? That is entirely possible. It depends on the, on the context. And in that case, some Something like Broadway can save you a lot of hassle. So I wanted to plug it here. Yeah. I think speaking of Broadway, a lot of Dashbit libraries are, I'll just like add like a one single plug, right? Like, I mean, there's Nimble CSV, Nimble Options, all of these are, check out Dashbit, GitHub. They have really small utility libraries, which a lot of them don't even have external dependencies, which make it really cheap to maintain and br bring them in. So yeah, Nimble CSV and Nimble Options is something I use a lot when I don't want to use Ecto to validate options, right? Because uh, Ecto is the best way to do that, but it's very heavyweight. Nimble Options makes it very easy. And obviously Nimble CSV, if you play around with CSV, any kind of importing, ex exporting as well, actually, Nimble CSV is pretty useful. Yeah, Nimble's, I basically all these Nimble's, the Nimble series are really good. Yeah. yeah, they even have Nimble OTP, which is quite interesting. I used that quite a few times, generating OTP, you know, one-time passwords. It works in oh, Google Authenticator, super nice. I was very confused for a second because I was like, wait, they have like some wrapper around like OTP, right? Like, oh, what, kind of, what kind of things do they do? Is that like some yeah. process, right? And then, oh, okay, one-time password. Okay, I got it. <laughs> sorry, it's, it's, I think it's called Nimble TOTP for time, one-time passwords, you know, time-based nice. ones. Oh, okay. Yeah, but especially Nimble Options is something I've, I've fallen in love with recently. Uh, it honestly, like, that is like one of the, the, the boilerplate things I've been most annoyed with of writing. Like, okay, I want to have some options here and I want to kind of make sure that maybe either people pass in the right stuff. And then Nimble Options is just so nice to use. And then it also helps you do, generate documentation. It also helps you generate type specs. And um, all of this is something you can do with Nimble Options. Um, so while it's not super critical as this is an app you are just building for yourself, it's also not much of an overhead and you do catch errors through this, right? Like you can basically 
completely ignore a whole category of, of maybe test cases, right? Where you say, okay, I want to make, I want to have some tests where I verify what happens when I pass some other data into my options. And if you have something like nimble options, well, that thing does it for you. <laughs> totally. So, yeah, really cool. I guess one last utility one. We mentioned it last episode too, but Benchy. Again, quick shout out to that. Like very easy to do benchmarks for any Elixir function. <laughs> and also it's actually pretty 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 good too. It gives you an entire standard like standard deviation <laughs> of the, the entire distribution of the, the function, depending on how many times you run, the more the more accurate it gets. So that's pretty cool too. Yeah. And again, if you want to do any kind of observability or whatever, check out our previous episode. We talked about that in, in depth. There is one thing I want to talk about because Alan mentioned absinthe. And I want to talk about that too. Now in my experience, I feel like a GraphQL interface read or write a query or mutation, I think just gets very hard to maintain very quickly, especially I think authorization uh, with like nested schemas and stuff. I think it just gets very tricky if you're exposing a GraphQL interface directly to a user, right? But if you're exposing it to a separate application, which further consumes it, you know, wraps around the authorization layer, absent, I think is an overkill. And I've had a great experience using something like Hasura, which is just a GraphQL wrapper around your database. And it has, it, you can add authorization and stuff to it as well. Rate limiting, all, all that. And it also has a, like a WebSocket server. So you can, subscriptions and stuff work really well, like real-time updates. You can get like real-time updates without even live view <laughs> or any kind of publishing, infrastructure publishing. You just need a subscriber. So yeah, Hasra is a huge call. It's not Elixir, but I have built a lot of startup early stage applications and added Hasra to it just to add the GraphQL layer with ease, with like almost zero maintenance. Yeah. I heard about this. Isn't there another tool that has something similar? Not that I'm aware of. Like, is that the one that hooks directly into Postgres, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe it is this one. Yeah, I know a lot of people who like who use this as kind of like their bread and butter whenever they're making something. They just kind of do all the work in, in there. Right. And cool thing is, if you, even if you don't want to use GraphQL, you can wrap up a GraphQL query into a REST endpoint using Hasrat admin interface. Great use case for this is if you're building, and this is something I used in my previous startup, I had had a technical, technically aligned person, I thought that person had to use GraphQL, the Hasra's admin interface, and just gave them, them the re- read replica access. They, even if they try, they cannot write. <laughs> and boom, read whatever you want. The read replica on a stream replication, it would, ha- it would, have, it would not have any sensor of data that would that's like, oh, the end of the world for the company. But you can expose it to whatever, mm-hmm. expose it to like a paper form and like add a form submission software, right? Just completely, it just completely makes your ability to do experiments easier because the, it's a very good no-code solution, which which again talks to you, the rest of your application because it gets real-time updates. How do you then, like, do you use any particular tooling to cre- write those GraphQL queries or do you just have them as strings in your application? Yeah, I mean, to start with, you can have them as strings, but like I said, you can wrap GraphQL queries as REST queries within Hasura, so just make a REST call, a, a GET request that get, gets you data. Okay, but I, I mean, because I'm, I'm, I was interested in, like again, like startup pack, right? Like, is there any dev tooling you're aware of, like, of, of building a GraphQL client in Elixir? Because I, I also did that for work recently, and I used um, like GraphQL like interactive editors in the browser to build the query, and then literally copy pasted it. I don't think there is a very good GraphQL client at all. <laughs> not okay. even not just at Elixir, right? As long as you use the schema introspection, the schema dot GraphQL mm-hmm. to validate what you're doing, how you come up with it is, it, I think it's like depends on your use case. Like I, that, that's only that's the only qualifier for me for a, a GraphQL client side to be good is to make sure your queries are validated at compile time. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? Because you can get schema.graphql of a module without running it. Just r- run it once, boom, get schema.graphql. Use a Git hook to get it to a client. And at, at, with, before even deploying, make sure your schemas and your queries are somewhat uh, valid. Okay, but this is code you write yourself then? or I mean, like, so, what does the verification there? Yeah, so I can I can pitch my Elixir package that I wrote a while ago that does a runtime schema introspection and introspects a query without actually making the call. I actually forgot the name of it. I think it's called Common GraphQL Client, uh, and I can get a, put a link to that. And yep, there is. I can put a link to that in the show notes. It's actually pretty pretty cool. But it just uses Apollo in the background and like just like changes its configuration and environment variables to make sure your queries are valid. Where is it? Client query validation. There is. Then maybe this is like also a wish at the, at the Elixir community at large because it would be really nice to like have something similar to to he he heats. I never know how to pronounce that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like so like the, the HTML where Elixir templating thing, right? Uh, but have something like that for GraphQL queries. And the very first step at this point, I would already be happy if it would just do syntax checking, right? Like that would already be a boon, right? right. And say, hey, is this even a valid GraphQL query like from a syntax level? Right. And then you still can go ahead and say, okay, now maybe have some additional logic to say, okay, now I want to verify this already valid query against some schema. And that would be right. really nice. Like in a, if I can do that, for example, in the CI, right? In the CI step. That's the exact purpose of this, to do it at CI. Before you even deploy your application, make sure your queries are valid based on expected schema or GraphQL. Yeah, and that, because that, that, I mean, that, that, that is the thing. I think GraphQL is something with that people sometimes reach too quickly for, I feel, because you do, you do lose a whole good, so whole slew of useful HTTP stuff like caching that becomes a whole slew diff- more difficult. But like when you are on the con- client side, on the consumer side, and you have a product, I mean, for example, like a CMS that has a GraphQL interface or Hasura, as you mentioned, then having a little bit of those, those tooling to make you sh- to help make you sure that you don't have a typo in there somewhere, then that's super useful. 100%. Yeah, the biggest biggest use case for GraphQL is this contract, which yeah, the contract almost exactly. zero effort. Yep. Yeah. Okay, I'm looking, I, I kind of kept the list uh, while we were talking. And I mean, we, honestly, we are kind of pretty well covered. I mean, we talked about Phoenix, we talked about persistence, we talked about rate limiting and how to build front ends of Tailwind. We talked about security and maybe like a super small plug here on the security side. Um, you, Adi, already mentioned Sobolo. If you build something that has maybe a bit higher profile or you really want to make sure that it's safe that it's secure and maybe reach for a product like Paraxel I mean like we had um, the, 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 the person that founded it on the show and it's an Elixir specific solution and it helps you keep your product safe and they we have an episode on that maybe check it also out he's talking a whole bunch about also like how they kind of do bot detection right and all those kind of things so if you think that that would be a concern on your side then like a software as a service solution such as Paraxel might be worth your while um, yeah, we talked about testing we talked about mocking caching how to build HTTP interfaces um, about time <laughs> we talked about observability in the sense of libraries but also service providers about hosting and deployments we talked about eventing we talked about dev, dev experience with all the nimble libraries I feel we got it covered I mean if anybody actually listens to this in the sense of hey I haven't really built anything production ready yet and now I want to I feel they have a very very thorough list and a very long list of things they might want to check out for sure yeah I do want to add and and I think it's been a while since I've said it, I, but I, I hope it, you know, people, I hope there isn't a need to always remind people. If people have questions, just reach out, uh, at least to me. And I, I know Sasha and Alan are also happy to answer questions. So just feel free to reach out about any of this. Yeah, more than happy to help. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely, 100%. And yeah, also, I heard a bot, actually, I, I haven't really gotten a DM yet. <laughs> no, a single on, one? On, tele on Telegram, no. yeah, on Telegram, on some Telegram, bot reached yeah, out to me, mind. asked me how to process data <laughs> in Elixir. And I was like, who are you? And they replied, <laughs> I'm from Germany. <laughs> nice. I think I, I got, said, I think I got the you? same bot message. You got the same one? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. So I, it looks I, like somebody's listening. <laughs> Yeah, I asked like a apologies and then they asked back what and I was like okay block. <laughs> okay, this is what, crazy. I, I get an I get an email roughly every other week because the, uh, because through the podcast. So oh. yeah, maybe you guys should be more open. Hey, <laughs> reach out to us too. I'm kidding. You can. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna plug my my email address now because uh, my my email is dev at sashawolf dot me. So this that's why. That's me. why. <laughs> Yeah, now you can reach me. And I'm also on Twitter at Wolf for Earth, but honestly, I'm not really monitoring Twitter since uh, the whole Elon Musk thing. Like, Twitter kind of. I'm also on, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Hachidurm, Hachidurm.io. It's, it's a Mastodon instance. I'm also there on Wolf for Earth. Better actively, better, better monitor more actively. But yeah, you can reach me for email. I mean, do you want to plug your email too? If you want to reach me, just just look up for Adi. Send him Adi to forward it over. Alan's a busy guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, just, I just want to annoy you. Basically, double the spam. No, nice. I mean, I, I'm sure. I'm, if, if I'm Alan's me, spam filter. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, for real, I think if people want to get a hold of me, I don't think I'm that difficult to find. I mean, Amber found me on Telegram, so must be easy to find me somehow. Okay, then let's transition to Pix, I would say. <laughs> you should have seen Ari's face. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I wasn't ready, but a, a quick one came in my mind, and which I can just pick. So we talked about security a lot. We talked about, you know, all this stuff. We, don't talk, we forgot to talk about authentication. And the just want to give two, like, picks which in combination. I think it's the quickest way to add authentication to your application. It's Uber Auth with Auth0. Both are free, actually, if you use it for a few months. I mean, Uber Auth is an open source package, and Auth0 is a service that is a, that provides OAuth. Right, so you can create an odd zero account and just add an authentication interface. It will be, it will say it's in dev mode, but it'll be free. And you know, once you're ready, it's like four or five bucks a month. So I would definitely check it out. I know mixed Phoenix Gen auth is attractive and stuff. It's a pain to manage your authentication. Trust me. Once you have a production app, you don't want to do that. Just outsource that. Buy over build, uh, as people say. Right. So odd zero and Uberoth, check them out. My other pick is a game that I started playing yesterday and I've been playing today. The reason why I did not sleep yesterday night is Baldur's Gate 3. It's epic. I know a AAA game, whatever. Uh, I, I bought the deluxe version. That's why I got three-day early access. And it's beautiful. If you're a D&D &D fan, if you're a Baldur's Gate fan, if you're just like D&D &D lore fan, RPG fan, play it. I think it's a, I think it's a genre-defining game. I put it in that category. Skyrim category. It's, it's pretty epic. Definitely play that game. There's one note I got to say here because I listened to a podcast on the game. The Act 3 is very, very unfair finished and very buggy so act one and act two are probably really really good from what i've heard um, but it really is a letdown in the later parts of the game so maybe uh. like, definitely agreed 100 it's the, it's an amazing game basically the podcast kind of concludes with it's the best game we cannot recommend yet <laughs> so maybe wait it out a bit until they kind of patch those which is not uncommon for the games the studio is publishing it's Lar larian studios and the last game they published had a similar story about the end of the game not quite being there yet so maybe 
wait for like a few more months. And I mean, like bugs in the sense of game breaking, right? Like where you can't progress any further because the plot, you have plot stoppers and that kind of shit. So. Then you get to play the game all over again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, from what I've also heard. I mean, I haven't played it myself, but from what I've heard, it's it's amazing. It just needs more polish. Alan, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, I have. I have one pick. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a huge Metal Gear Solid fan. They have that collection volume one coming out. I this is one. This is probably like the only game I've pre-ordered so far. I don't know. I'm not like maybe about you guys. For me, I like to wait till the Steam sale comes up and quite cheap. But uh, for this one, like I guess. I'm a huge Metal Gear fan, so I, I pre-ordered this one so I can get all the content. I've been really wanting to play this game on my Steam Deck, and so now with it coming out in October, it's going to be nice and fun. And uh, quick plug, I am coming to Codebeam in Berlin, so uh, hopefully we'll see any of you guys there. Just let me know. I mean, obviously, if you guys are coming, then you can find me there. You don't need to email Addy, but uh, definitely uh, check it out. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully, Sasha will also come since it's pretty much in his neck of the woods. And I think Addy's going to try to join virtually. So yeah, if you guys are going, let us know and then we'll can try to meet up. Maybe we can see if we get some stickers or something. That'd be kind of fun. Nice. Nice. From my side, I honestly don't have any picks this week. So That's not allowed. Disappointing, <laughs> I know. Disappointing. I just can't think of anything right now. Pick so. like a conference or something. Pick Spawnfest. I pick vacation. You all should and take more vacation and more rest because I'm going to take a nice week of vacation next week and you should do the same. Take care. <laughs> I would say Sasha has an anti-pick, Baldur's Gate 3, right? So <laughs> Take vacation to not play Baldur's Gate 3 yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was a pleasure, Ali and Alan. And I hope you all enjoyed listening to this as much as it was enjoyable for us talking about this. And I hope you tune in next time with another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye. <laughs>